This is the Horse Radio Network. You're listening to The Stall and Stable Show, ideas for happy horsekeeping. In the second edition of Stall and Stable West, guest host Tara Tibbetts goes in-depth describing her farm in North Texas and how her barn setup works for her three horses and her lifestyle. Combining a long family history in ranch-style horsekeeping with a progressive view on horsekeeping in a suburban area, you'll understand why Tara's perfectly suited for sharing her ideas for happy horsekeeping. So listen in. This is Episode 2 of Stall and Stable West. Today's Thursday, November 17th, 2022. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Our sponsor this week is Barn Pros. We are absolutely delighted to welcome Barn Pros as our podcast's newest title sponsor. So why Barn Pros? Well, for most equestrians, whether amateurs or pros, the challenges of time and money are ceaseless. One of the ways we overcome those challenges is by being as efficient as possible, but without compromising quality care for our horses or ourselves. Enter Barn Pros. They offer extraordinarily well-thought-out barn and living structures that combine horse space and human space. One structure solves two problems. Barn Pro's exceptional quality, precise engineering, and streamlined building process reduces guesswork, mistakes, and time to build. That means time and money saved. See? Problem solved. Their barn packages include everything from blueprints to lumber and hardware, all ready to build. Plus, they have great resources for educating and supporting their customers throughout the entire process. To see their designs and floor plans, visit them online at barnpros.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Stall and Stable West. This is our second episode. I'm your host, Tara Tibbetts. And today, I just kind of wanted to further develop and talk a little bit more about my background and my current setup with my horses. My goal with Stall and Stable West is to focus more and talk to folks, focus more on and talk to people who have their horses at home or who run some type of boarding and training stable and keep their horse and keep horses for themselves and others in the Western United States. So I think it, it, it helps listeners to better see, understand where I'm coming from and what my philosophy is, and a huge emphasis on, I really come from a background of constantly learning and constantly changing and trying to do the best for my horses with the resources that I have. So I grew up, as we mentioned last time, in eastern Montana, and my parents lived on 20 acres that had fairly variable terrain, um, really, really nice dirt in hindsight. I really miss the ground there. Um, it wasn't hard. It wasn't sandy. It wasn't rocky. It was just kind of perfect. I don't actually know what the scientific name for the kind of dirt was, but um, it was a river valley in eastern Montana. So my dad grew up with a very stereotypical western cowboy type of horse experience, We're talking round up herds of wild horses that had been released by owners during the depression years because they couldn't afford to take care of them, ear them down, blindfold them, whatever, throw a saddle on, get on and ride it till it stops bucking or the rider came off. 
so that's his background. My mom, on the other hand, grew up in a more similar to what we do now type of environment. Her dad, her parents, I guess, had a few quarter horse stallions. And they always had a number of their own mares and outside mares coming in. So a lot going on with managing multiple horses. They were on a similar size property, if I recall, 30, 40 acres maybe, where they kept their horses. They had a lot of stabling and pens. And uh, dad's situation was more pasture keeping, less barn keeping. Very similar climates, I would say. So that really led to how they decided to lay out the property where I grew up. And they moved to that property and they built it from scratch. Unfortunately, my dad passed away in 2006. And so I never was really able to discuss how or why he did what he did. And my husband and I bought the place where we live in 2006. So and this is kind of like a sad thing, but the last time I saw my dad alive was when he and my mom brought my horse Jaguar to Texas. And Jaguar was born at my parents' place when I was 13. So I had him for his whole 29 years. And I think his longevity is indicative of just the great care he got as a baby and growing up and his development. And then obviously, I, you know, I feel like I took good care of him into his old age. So I threw a bareback pad on him every now and then and rode him around a little bit. He did seem a lot sounder the last couple of years in his life than he was from like 24 to 26. But my point going back is we bought this place in, you know, 2006. And so I didn't have my dad to talk to and ask questions about how to do things like I wish I would have. And I mean, I talked to mom about stuff and she definitely has a lot of experience, but she, that's kind of less her passion. Um, she was more into just actually riding and, you know, she just wasn't as passionate about all the other stuff. My dad had a, prof his, his profession at the time when he passed away was a liquid cattle feed supplement business. And so he was always very passionate about nutrition and healthcare and providing animals with care to prevent requiring vet care later, which really I think has fed my horse care philosophy as well. And I mentioned this in the previous episode with Helena, but we never had horses colic when I was a kid. The only times I recall a horse colicking was my dad had a stallion when I was very little. His name was Doc's Black Jet. He colicked and passed away. And that was very much a, a symptom of being in an area where there is very, very little vet care for anything and definitely not robust vet care for horses. I think in hindsight, honestly, Banamine probably would have saved that horse's life. He was five or six years old. Anyways, was definitely a very um, sparse veterinary presence then and now. And it, it seems like it's a little bit better now. There's a couple of options, but they're still two to one hour drive away from where I grew up. The other was also a stallion. It was Jaguar's dad died of colic, but he was... I can't remember if he was 19 or 22 when he passed away, but I think his colic was definitely related to something internal that I don't probably would have been a, a surgical situation. And I doubt my parents would have done surgery on a horse that old. So those are the only two colics. And my, and we had a minimum of seven to 10 horses on the property at all times. So a lot of horses, a, you know, a lot of care to go into them and dad's biggest 
philosophy, I guess, for lack of a better word, was he didn't believe in keeping horses in the barn and stalls. So we had a barn. It had four stalls. The stalls all had runs off of them. I don't recall ever closing the stall doors and leaving the horses completely locked in the barn, except for maybe um, I had a gray horse that I showed in 4-H when I was little. We might have kept him in a stall overnight so he didn't get dirty. But they, you know, they spent the days in the barn or in a pen eating, you know, they got a concentrate feed. Dad usually fed whole oats or something like that. I don't think that the the Purina, Triple Crown, I don't think those types of feeds, they either weren't available in eastern Montana or they didn't have the presence that they have now. But we fed whole oats, a lot of hay, a tiny bit of alfalfa. That was very much a point in time when people really believed that alfalfa made them hot. Research has shown that that's not true. Lots of fresh grazing when they were turned out. And that was the interesting thing about eastern Montana that I I look back on and I, I, it's just, it's interesting to me. We had way better grass there than I have here in Texas during the growing season. So the cold season grasses in, in Eastern Montana were wonderful. They, you know, you, it kept the horses with good weight. We never had anything get laminitic. We never had anything that had any semblance of a symptom of PPID or any of those types of old horse insulin problems. And I think it was kind of the balance of it was lush spring summer grass but then they went to that same grass as hay in the fall and the winter and it seems to have balanced out and it happened gradually on its own because like right now at home it's started snowing I think the week before Halloween and so when you get that it gets cold and freezes and snows it gets cold and freezes and snows and warms up in between the grass doesn't completely die but clearly it loses a lot of health And so you're kind of intermittently feeding them hay because they still have grass that they can get to. The feeding regimen, and and again, this is kind of one of those things I'd like to go back and have the ability to talk to my dad about, but I don't know if it was purposeful, but it really worked out. And I moved to Texas and the place that we bought here, it's a long and skinny property. It's about 100 yards wide. It's exactly, I think, 10 acres. So really narrow, long, rocky. So we're on top of a hill. The buildings are on top of a hill. There's a lot of rocks. And in this area of Texas, in Dallas-Fort Worth, I've heard it said by many people that you go high up and it's rocky and you go into the flatter, lower areas and it's a really nice sandy loam soil. So we have a little bit of both. There was an existing barn on the property when we moved here. Not a particularly nice barn, but it was very functional for the the few years that that was the only barn that we had. Um, and the it's fully fenced, like good fence, like goat fence which is was really nice and saved us a lot of money as young. I was in my 20s when we moved here. We just kind of left everything as it was for a few years, which was a nice luxury to be here for a while before we started putting any buildings or changing any fencing or whatnot, because it, it gives you the opportunity to understand, like, where does the water flow when it rains? Where, you know, is it windy and which direction most often? You know, where's the footing the best if you want to put it in an arena? Where do the horses naturally want to go during different kinds of weather? Which, if you're not familiar with North Texas, it's really hot here. I would say from June through September, like 80s, 90s, 100s, pretty consistently in that time frame. It's mid-November right now, and today is the first day that it got really into the 30s. So we get four seasons for sure, but we don't get blistering, cold, terrible, you know, 50 below zero like I grew up with. 
So we don't have to set the property up to deal with a lot of freezing temperatures. It's We have set ours up to deal with, we have water and stuff available as long as we have the ability to keep things above 32 degrees and keep them watered and fed and whatnot. Uh, we had, I don't, I wouldn't say our power going out situation is the best, but knock on wood, we've been really fortunate. So going back, we used the barn the way it was. I had two or three horses for a while. Then I bought my mare Coco, who is my show hunter now. She's 10. She moved here when she was six months old. At the point in time when I decided to buy her, we decided to build a new barn. So the barn I built is four stalls and then there's two rooms which I think in hindsight was maybe a little more than I needed, but I love my barn and I use every inch of it. So my stalls are 12 by 14 with the intentions going in of riding and doing show hunters or jumpers or whatnot. I knew I was going to have bigger horses and I wanted stalls big enough that if they had to get locked in them, they, they had space to lay down and be comfortable. So adding length to a barn is cheaper than adding width to a barn. So my barn is your standard 36 wide. So it's 12 by 12 by 12, 12 foot wide stall, 12 foot aisle, 12 foot stall. So the length is a little bit longer so that each of the stalls are 14 feet wide. And then the two rooms are 14 feet wide. So the two rooms face each other. And then the four stalls are like, there's two stalls facing each other, if that gives you um, an idea. And then there's two sliding doors at either, either end of the barn. So you really can open it up and get fantastic airflow, which is very, very crucial in hot weather climates. All of the stalls have runs. They're about, they vary a little bit. My husband built the runs and they are oil field pipe runs. My parents had pipe fencing and we never, ever had any issues with horses getting hurt on them. And so that is why I replicated that material here. And we have virtually unlimited access to it just because we are near so much oil and gas drilling. So it's the big oil field pipe is the frame, and then we use sucker rod. I think there's three or four rows of sucker rod underneath of that. And so the runs are, they're like 17-ish feet wide, and then they're 45 or 50 feet long. And then one stall actually has a paddock. It's a nice, lovely paddock to where I've had a horse sharing that paddock with um, a mini horse and a donkey. And they had plenty of space. I have strong feelings about allowing multiple horses to be in a stall together. I do not like having horses having access to a stall. When I was a kid, we had three horses go into a stall together. And one of them got just got the tar kicked out of it. And it broke many of his ribs. And he lost some of his lung capacity. It was really awful. And it just stresses me out. So I was okay with the little mini pony being able to get in there with a horse and we kept an eye on them for a while before we decided it was okay. And they had a good set hierarchy. The donkey never went in the stall ever. He never wanted to be in a stall. So that works out really nicely. If I have a situation where I have a horse who's on stall rest, they can be in a stall, a 12 by 14 stall, can close the door and they can't get out. And I've had this happen. I had a horse on stall rest. Coco had to have surgery on her leg when she was a yearling. And then... When they get released to have a little bit more movement, they can be allowed to go out into their stall run. And that gives them the ability to move around, but they don't have enough space where they can like run and hurt themselves, essentially. And then when they graduate beyond that, they can move to the stall with the paddock. 
it works out really nicely to give them really controlled space. And I had one vet compliment the setup because a lot of times when horses are recovering from some type of a limb injury, they don't want them to do a lot of turning, like going in circles. They want more straight line work. And the way my runs are set up, the horses tend to go in and out in straight lines. So it's, it's kind of its own version of rehab and has really worked out for me. I'm sure that there could be a situation when it could be the absolute opposite and it is a terrible situation, but only time will tell. The biggest weakness of my setup right now is that there's a cross fence. There's one cross fence across all the way across the 100 yards property. So it separates the house from where the two barns and my husband has an automotive shop are. So when the horses are turned out, they're out amongst all the buildings and Kevin's cars. So my goal, because Kevin does all the fence building and he works a lot, it's hard to get these things done. But my goal is is to fence off basically to where the horses have a pasture. So you would lead them straight out the barn and you'd have to put halters on to lead them out to the barn, to the pasture and it would keep them separated from the arena and the shop and the two barns so that they're not just mingling amongst things. I only have three horses here right now. And so having this setup is actually not that terrible. I have a Chincoteague pony who's two years old. I have my warm blood mare who's 10. And then I have an off-track thoroughbred who's eight. So I will talk more about them probably in a different episode. My thoroughbred is having some unique soundness challenges. And so we had a a very in-depth consultation yesterday with a specialist veterinarian that was kind of fascinating, but I feel like that could be its own, its own episode. And that's really more horse care than it is stall and stabling. So that's my setup. Uh, My horses, just to kind of give a quick overview of what they are like and why, you know, the variability in their care. So I have I'll go oldest to your youngest to oldest. So the youngest is a two-year-old Chincoteague pony. My primary consideration with him right now is he's a baby. And everything you read and all the research you see in science right now about babies is that you don't want them to be fat ever when they're young. You kind of don't want them fat ever, ever. But you especially don't want them fat when they're young because that really makes them have a much higher risk for insulin issues and laminitis and all of those things that you see in a lot of older horses now with those ailments. So I've been fortunate thus far, knocking on wood again, to have not had to deal with any of those things. So I would like to keep it that way. So I try to keep him on the thinner side, which he's a pony again. And we all know ponies tend to be little chunky monkeys. So He gets a very limited concentrate diet. I've changed his feed from a grow feed now to he's on a maintenance balancer. I feed mostly triple crown concentrates. I I appreciate their quality and their consistency and the way their feed is made. And it's easy for me to get where I am. So he's getting a very small amount of a balancer and then just a bunch of grass hay. And I do feed year round. All of my horses get some semblance of beet pulp and alfalfa cubes that are soaked. And I have found in my experience that if they're used to eating that every day and I need to give them medicine or I'm worried about how much water they're drinking or I want to give them extra electrolytes or any of those types of things, if they're already used to getting that mash, they're a lot better about eating it even if I've introduced something into that mash 
because they've been getting it anyways. And sometimes I'll just like put molasses in it or put something in it to mix it up even without medicine so that if I do do that with medicine, they eat it. So Gene's portion, his name is Gene, the pony. He gets a very, it's like, I call it a no thank you helping of both his concentrate and his alfalfa cube beet pulp mash. Next is the high maintenance child is my eight year old off the track thoroughbred. All of these animals I've had since they were young. Gene, we bought when he was three months. He came to Texas when he was about five months. Simon, my off-track thoroughbred, is eight. I got him the January he turned three. So not a baby baby, but very young. Simon is your stereotypical off-track thoroughbred. He's not impossible to put weight on, but it's difficult to put weight on him. So he's getting three pounds of triple crown complete. He is getting... I, I should know the weight and I weighed it at one point, but he's getting like a th- two thirds of a scoop of beet pulp, two full heaping scoops of alfalfa cubes soaked, and then he gets as much grass hay as he will eat. He's good on the body scale right now. You can't quite see his ribs. He's not getting a lot of work and I've been riding him three or four times a week after the vet appointment yesterday. He's going off of work completely. Until he goes back to the vet, he's going to go stay for a two-week treatment. He doesn't have, like, he's clearly lame. Look at him, lame, bob, you know, head-bobbing lame. There's just something not quite right with him. And we did the, the very thorough investigation yesterday. And as it turns out, he's just kind of a mess everywhere. And he specifically is having a lot of pain in his girth area and his sternum. So the vet advised not to ride him because... and. I saw this symptomatically when you put the saddle on and the girth on, he collapses in the cross ties a lot. And it's, I attributed it to a a vasovagal nerve response, which if you Google that, you can find a lot of horses have that. Well, his is probably a little bit vasovagal, but it's also because it causes so much pain to put the girth on. So of course I feel terrible, but we're making progress. But I think part of his, his heart keepingness comes from how much pain he's experiencing in his whole body. So hopefully by doing these, this treatment that he's going to have, he will have less pain and will, it'll change his metabolism because he's at the age now as an eight-year-old that he, even though he's a thoroughbred and he's not a particularly anxious thoroughbred, I would surmise that he would start getting better about gaining and keeping weight. So we'll see. And then last but not least is my 10-year-old warm blood. And she is a registered Ryland Faltzar, which now that registry has changed and it's Westphalen. I'm very proud of her. She was the high scoring filly in North America in 2012. She's very beautiful. Interestingly, if you don't know, warm bloods are registries. They're not breeds. Um, the only warm blood breed that exists is a tracaner. That's a true breed. Everything else is a registry. So they're all mutts. And Coco's mutt makeup is her mom is registered Belgian, but her mom was born and raised in the United States. She's just registered with the Belgian registry. Her dad, it was a jockey club thoroughbred named Coconut Grove. So Coco is technically half thoroughbred, even though she is a registered warm blood and she's fully registered. I haven't done mare inspections with her for, there's a number of reasons and it. She, she, she should not or cannot have babies. And we learned that the hard way. So there's really no point in getting her full um, mare registry, but she is more, she's not a full on warm blood easy keeper but she's not a full-on like jockey club thoroughbred hard to get weight on. She's got a very round rib cage. She's about 16 hands, so she's a nice compact size. 
she is easier to put weight on. And like right now, the grass has gotten really good and she's had to help yourself hay bale. And so she's gotten a little bit chunky, which if you're familiar to showing hunters, the show hunters tend to have their horses a little bit fatter than I think is healthy. So probably most show hunters would say right now that she looks amazing. I think she looks too fat. She is also, she is getting the same feed as Jean, the triple crown balancer. Obviously she gets more because she's bigger and she gets a, a beet pulp alfalfa cube mash once a day. And then she gets a couple flakes of grass hay. And I've taken a lot of my feeding, um, approach from listening to Dr. Erica Latcher's podcast, Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth. She is very opposed to supplements. And um, through what she has said, I've, I've done my own research and I try to read as much as possible. As I've said, I've subscribed to Equus and The Horse, which are both very veterinary centric magazines. And there's no research that is truly scientific that any supplements are really necessary or do anything for the horses. So mine don't get supplements. They get good feed. They get as much grazing as they want. Um, I buy hay from someone who tests it. So I have an idea of what my hay makeup is. We're working on improving our pastures. We've definitely overgrazed our property for the past 10 years. And so that's a new project that I'll probably talk a lot about on the podcast and hopefully get some guests on to help with that, to discuss it. Um, you know, we're in North Texas and, and we, we know we have two or three different soil types on our property and the rocky part obviously is going to be, if we get grass to grow in the rocky part, that's wonderful. The challenge is the part that's been overgrazed in the back. And so you can really see a significant difference in the erosion from one of our neighbors and our place. And so it's kind of a baseline to look at, but all that to say, there's a lot that goes into horse care. And just because I do things a certain way, I don't think it's the only good way to do things. Um, every property is different. I mean, I can think of 10 people I know who own horses within 15 miles of me, and they take care of their horses and their property very differently, and their horses are happy and healthy. So I find a lot of value in listening to and talking to different people. And I work full time. I work outside of the house for you know, at least four days every week, usually sometimes five. My husband is the same. So we need a setup that is fairly simple and easy for someone who's, you know, someone who's not me to do. And I, you know, for us to leave town to go places, we, you know, the horse setup needs to be that in a way someone who's maybe not is comfortable around horses, but isn't like a horse person per se can easily get them into their stall safely and feed them safely. And ha, you know, has, we're lucky where we are because there's a gajillion vets and farriers and all that. So we can be pretty choosy about that. I have a great relationship with my veterinarian. Um, they, they take my phone calls, my bills are paid so that when I have bad things happen, like when Jaguars colicked a couple times and he ultimately had to be put down, you know, we can, we can do those things. I would welcome feedback. If, if there's anything listeners are curious about hearing more about or things they want to hear people talk about, I'd love to hear that. My email address is tntibbets, T-N-T-I-B-B-E-T-T-S at gmail.com. And I would just put stall and stable in the subject line. And if you have suggestions or questions, I would welcome getting that information. Um, 
Helena and I have a lot in common, but we have very different perspectives just primarily because of geography. But a lot of it is too, is because I grew up in a very horsey family and all my aunts and uncles and grandparents and obviously my parents and some of my cousins have horses, had horses, um, and are horse people. So I think that that, that paints a very different experience in how you live your life with horses, especially, you know, if you're someone who horses are your thing and no one, you know, you don't go to Thanksgiving and talk about, you know, what the best trailer brand is and, you know, what trainers doing what like happens in my family. So I appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to more happy horsekeeping. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed Tara's episode. We will be back again next month with a guest for Stall and Stable West. But if you'd like Tara to cover something in detail about life with horses in the Western U.S., just send us an email. You can go up to our website at stallandstable.com. You can use the Contact Us form or send a message directly to email at stallandstable.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode.